Hello and welcome to the Science and or Fiction Podcast. I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. Hey, welcome back, Taylor. Welcome back, Lucas. It's been a little while. Uh, a little bit. And, you know, podcast listeners love it when their podcast hosts talk about how long it's been since they've recorded a podcast. So why don't we do that for a little bit? Yeah, it's 15 minutes of that will <laughs> probably be fine. Yeah. Um, so something exciting happened uh, 50 years ago that uh, we're going to be celebrating that uh, that 50-year anniversary of here in, in about a week. Uh, and that is the moon landing. Yeah, it's Apollo 11 was about 50 years ago now. Yeah, so it was uh, launched on July 16th from 1969. As we're recording this, it's July 8th, 2019. So uh, just a little bit over a week from now. Uh, 50 years ago, and then landed on the moon on July 20th of 1969. And this is this is a pretty pretty significant thing in the history of space exploration, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um, I mean, the moon landings it was the first and so far only time that human footsteps have been on another world somewhere other than Earth, and that's pretty momentous. Yeah. Um, although when Gene Cernan got into the LM after Apollo 17 to take off, um, I'm not sure that he would have thought it would have been 50 years later and we still haven't returned. Right. That's the thing. So, I mean, there were a few um, more Apollo missions. There were Apollos 12 and 13, which famously did not make it to landing on the moon, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all within the period of a few years. Um, after Apollo 11, and they carried um, a number of other astronauts and, and uh, the famous lunar rover, among other things, to the moon. But yeah, I don't think anyone intended for it to be 50 years almost before we went back, and quite possibly even longer than that. But let's take a little bit of a look back at the Apollo 11 mission and see how that all kind of went down. Yeah, so... As we said, they they this this was launched. This was launched on what sixteenth uh, of July, nineteen sixty nine. But right. as as Apollo eleven, you know, this 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 race to the moon did not start with Apollo eleven. This was not the first time we shot at the moon. No, and um, Armstrong and Aldrin um, and Collins were really following in the footsteps of some previous astronauts that had really paved the way. Um, especially like, I don't know, Apollo 10 is a really cool mission to me. They basically got to do everything but land and you almost feel bad for those guys. Yeah. That would have been, I mean, kind of a a rough situation to, to go out and orbit the moon the way that Apollo 11 would, um, to establish that ability to land and then not be able to land, but just be (laughs) close enough that you can almost reach out the window and touch it. But there were also, um, you know, there were there were there was a obviously a famous tragedy. Apollo One, um, the first mission to um, sort of pave the way for the launch technologies and, and spacecraft that would take us to the moon. Um, there was a tragic accident that happened there, where three astronauts um, who were supposed to be the astronauts that would fly that first Apollo mission uh, died in a fire on 
the uh, the platform at Kennedy Space Center or then Cape Canaveral. The the Apollo One fire was oh I mean I still you know having not it it happened you know decades before I was born so I wasn't around when that happened but when I think about it, it still messes me up a little bit because there was something about the just the pace that we were heading towards the moon at and it was just at you know breakneck speed and the Apollo 1 fire was the first time that I think anybody really took a step back and said okay maybe we need to slow down and be a little bit more careful um and the Apollo 1 fire that was a definitely a situation where if that hadn't happened on the ground it probably would have happened in orbit somewhere right and as bad as the Apollo fire 1 fire was I think if it had happened in orbit, I think that would have been it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a thing that, well, we were just talking about this before we started recording the episode. When it comes to space exploration, you can have two of three things. You can either have a space mission or a space program that's cheap, safe, or fast. If you want (laughs) one that's fast and safe, it is not going to be cheap. If you want one that's cheap and fast, it's not going to be safe. And I think that one of the things that that we think about, you know, with that was there was this sort of political mandate. Obviously, John F. Kennedy in 1961 uh, sort of launched us on this um, path towards the moon. Uh, Not literally, obviously, yet, but... That was that was how this all started. Was John F. Kennedy said we are going to go to the moon by the end of this decade, and we did, uh, but not without having to take that step back. And I think other people would say the same thing about the other two astronauts. But being from Indiana, I think about Gus Grissom a lot because there are a lot of things around Indiana named after Gus Grissom, um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure same for Ed White and Roger Chafee, but. Um, yeah, that was kind of how this all got started was it it started in tragedy. And despite that, we still moved ahead. Yeah. The, the, the recovery from the Apollo one fire is sort of, sort of proved that the only, the only real failure is one that you don't learn anything from. And the, the folks at NASA really took a step back and they reviewed everything and they went back and said, okay, we need to slow down. We need to review, make sure that these things are actually safe, that these things are actually going to get off the ground. And a lot of the changes that they made, you know, set up the rest of the Apollo missions to actually be successes. Um, if, you know, just taking one one more pass at, a, at, you know, with more scrutiny probably saved the lives of the rest of the Apollo astronauts in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. And that led us to where we're at with Apollo 11. Um, So, Apollo 11 launched on July 16th, and then we'll just, I'll just kind of go through the, uh, the story of how it ended up on the moon, and something that was remarkable about Apollo 11 was how it was televised. So, they went to great lengths to make sure that the people of America would see what was happening, and so throughout this, at different stages, they used this television camera that radio broadcasted back to Earth to show what was happening. And so that started with the orbital stage. So about two hours, 44 minutes, and one and a half revolutions. They ignited the next stage for five minutes, and that 
put Apollo 11 into that translunar orbit. The command and service module CSM Columbia separated from the first stage and the CSM docked with the lunar module. So the first color TV transmission to Earth from Apollo 11 occurred during the translunar coast of the CSM and LM. And then on the 18th, Armstrong and Aldrin put on their spacesuits, climbed through the docking tunnel from the CSM into the lunar module, and they transmitted that over the TV. And then on July 19th, they flew behind the moon, and this was the first time that they were out of contact with Earth. And then that's when they inserted into that lunar orbit. They made another TV transmission. And then on July 20th, things started to get kind of real. They made their final check. Uh, At 100 hours and 12 minutes into the flight, the Eagle undocked with Armstrong and Aldrin in it. And they separated from Columbia. They did a visual inspection at 101 hours and 36 minutes. Uh, The lunar module was behind the moon on its 13th orbit. It fired its descent engine for 30 seconds to provide that retrograde thrust and started its descent orbit insertion, 102 hours, 33 minutes. They reappeared from behind the moon. um, And then when the lunar module is about 300 miles uprange, they just powered their descent initiation. And after eight minutes, piloted by Armstrong, the Eagle landed in the Sea of Tranquility in sight to 0 degrees 41 minutes 15 seconds north latitude and 23 degrees 26 minutes east latitude. And that was when the probably second most famous phrase in all of the Apollo 11 mission was uttered, the eagle has landed. <laughs> the I, Just going back to the, the Apollo 10 stuff, I still think it's so cool that the, the crew, um, Stafford and Young and Cernan, did every single one of those things except the final you know that that final landing burn right um they they had the same kind of issues with the lumpy moon's gravity and that sort of helped um helped apollo 11 get to the right place but yeah it, it the the really really cool part of this mission was that that last landing burn which was <laughs> they had some problems on the way down with right. these uh with these alarms i think the i mean there's a lot out there on the apollo 11 or the Apollo computer and stuff, mm-hmm. but those. So on the way down, um, they kept having these things called twelve o two alarms or twelve o one alarms, and there's just something about this that's so crazy to me. This is back in the day. the The Apollo uh, the Apollo computers were the way they were programmed. Um, most of the most of the memory on these computers was programmed by physically connecting wires, like this rope memory that they had, right. and. Um, there was some sort of what we would call what we would call memory, you know, RAM. Um, but when the computer ran out of RAM, um, which wasn't ever supposed to happen, but sometimes it did, it would just restart itself. And right. so on on the way down on this descent, this computer restarted itself like four or five times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is nuts. Well, and we don't, you know, I'm for all of the notoriety that this had at the time. Obviously, it, it was broadcasted over radio and television throughout the United States and throughout the world, uh, we didn't really hear about all of these things that kind of went wrong or almost went wrong. Um, They didn't really talk about the computer failure issues. They didn't talk about the little course corrections and things that needed to be happened because we didn't just quite get the math exactly right. But overall, I think it's an incredibly tremendous feat of engineering to 
launch three human beings through space to another physical body in our solar system and land on it. And yeah, for them to have been able to do that with the technology that they had in 1969 is it's pretty astounding. Yeah, most, I mean, you think back to, like, think back to the cars in 1969. I mean, these yeah. things are, like, giant hunks of super heavy steel. Most of them didn't have airbags. Most of them didn't have, you know, seatbelts. <laughs> yeah. But it just, that that level of technology, you know, computers that took up an entire room, that sort of stuff, and they, they put people on the moon with that. And I think what that goes to show is that even though now we have, you know, our technology is a lot better, but there is there's something more than just technology um, that is required to put people in, you know, into space, but especially onto the moon. Right. Yeah. It goes beyond the technology. It, it takes a lot of people working together for one thing. I mean, obviously, you know, it took industries and um, a lot of money, a lot of money went into the Apollo program. Um, but there were some incredible people behind the Apollo program too, um, I think, um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember. There was a movie that just came out about, um, the, uh, the women who worked at NASA, uh, during the time of the Apollo missions. Yeah. Uh, the hidden figures, hidden figures. That was, yeah. That was great. Yeah. And, and I, that's also another part of the story that really wasn't told at the time that uh, was critical to the, the success of this mission. And I think, you know, it, it was, to a certain extent, this, this program couldn't have worked without the support of the American people um, for all of the grandstanding and, and things that went into it and maybe the competitiveness of it being an aspect of Cold War history, like if it hadn't been for the inspiration of john f kennedy and the american people being behind this you know politically and financially this would have never happened uh, particularly after something like the apollo one disaster i mean who's to say that they would have even continued right and and by design the apollo program basically had you had contractors and manufacturers and stuff in almost every state um, right. and and as many you know congressional districts as possible just just to make sure that almost almost anybody who would vote to defund this thing was mm-hmm. uh you know hurting themselves which right. is is great for funding um it can kind of turn into a bureaucratic mess after a while but um yeah this this literally had you know contributions from all over the place so i want to i want to mention something because i felt bad that i i don't i didn't remember the names of uh the uh, the, the mathematicians who work for NASA um, during the space race. But um, it's actually, even though this movie came out, it's surprisingly hard to find their names, which is really, <laughs> really a terrible thing. There was Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, and, and uh, Katherine Johnson. And obviously, I think Katherine Johnson is, is a more you know, well-known, um, individual within NASA and and the science, like space sciences. But yeah, I think probably would be remiss not to mention their names because I, uh, I don't think in 1969 women of color got the, uh, the representation and the, um, the support that they deserve for their part in this, this program. Yeah. And I know Catherine Johnson, 
she kept working at NASA for a long time, even right. after the Apollo era. She she was instrumental in some of the stuff with the shuttle program too. Um, one other person I want to mention, um, Margaret Hamilton was um, she was the person at MIT, and she led the team that built the uh, and designed the. I don't know if they built it, but they designed the Apollo computers. And I don't know. You you look up stuff about Margaret Hamilton. She's just an awesome person. Um, and the thing that gets me is that during you know during the flights, she would be more or less on hand to you know help troubleshoot stuff all the time. But a lot of the times, um, there was actually you know somebody at Mission Control sort of in the trench that would be from the computer team who was actually running things. So there was a guy named uh, Jack Garman. He was the guy who actually called out during all those alarms on the way down. He understood the um, he understood the computers and said, "Yeah, go go go. These these alarms are fine. We could ignore them." The problem was most people around that time was like, "Yeah, Jack Garman, he's the hero," and nobody knew about Margaret Hamilton, who actually designed the computer and designed all that stuff. It's yeah, yeah. Nineteen sixties, different an, time. Yeah, there was another um, another woman who I think absolutely deserves to be recognized and uh that's uh poppy northcutt um she was a flight engineer in mission control during apollo 8 um and involved in nasa throughout the apollo program so another person who needs to be recognized for all of the stuff that uh that she did to get us to the moon yeah and and taylor i don't know about you but my my first real introduction to the Apollo stuff was <laughs> I watched Apollo thirteen when I was you right. know, a kid. Yeah, and I don't know the the big the big name actors and stuff that they had were obviously playing you know the astronauts and and the flight director and stuff. But the 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 folks that I identified with the most were just the people at the consoles at Mission Control. Right. I don't know the we've we've mentioned a lot of names but all of those people who were sitting there manning their consoles and making sure that everything was actually working from a systems perspective they're they're sort of the i don't know they're the the unsung heroes i guess right. they're they're not necessarily the people who you know they weren't on stage but they were back in the sound booth you know <laughs> making yeah. sure everything worked yeah and i mean it, it, that's the other thing too the these programs you know they know um program of space exploration from the ongoing ISS to future space missions and everything that came before it. Absolutely none of those could work without having that ground component. The ground control um, is instrumental and there's always, always have been and I would imagine always will be people on the ground at places like Johnson Space Center and um, that are constantly monitoring and maintaining contact with either manned or unmanned missions. But yeah, that you, you mentioned Apollo 13. That's a, that's a, I think for our generation, probably, you know, we didn't, we weren't alive for any of the, uh, the manned Apollo missions to the moon, but Apollo 13 was kind of the first time we were exposed to the story of it. And, uh, I, I can agree with that. Like the people that were on the ground, uh, that, that would have been terrifying because you're you are fulfilling a very important role but like you know it's it's still incumbent on the crew of Apollo 13 to make it home safely but they rely on you completely to give them direction and tell them what's going on because they can't see and hear and do everything the way that 
you know, can be done with all the computer systems on the ground and things like that that were used. And just the people, the mathematicians that were doing the math with pencils and paper to try and figure out how to get them home safely. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, you're right. The, a lot of the, the credit for all this stuff, I mean, obviously the, the, you know, Armstrong and, and Aldrin and Collins, uh, or Michael Collins, everybody always forgets about him. Yeah. Um, but those three, you know, did a lot to, to land on the moon. And obviously they were very brave and they had a lot of great skills and they worked really hard and they, they, you know, executed this as well as they could and it worked. Um, but you know, there were hundreds and thousands of people who were in support roles who were, you know, behind the scenes. And even though they weren't the ones, you know, leaving their footprints, um, metaphorically, they, they still were. I, I think it would be interesting. Obviously this factors into the aesthetic of the, the film, uh, Apollo 13, but, uh, it's funny to watch the videos and everyone is just chain smoking cigarettes in mission control. And I would love to know like comparatively how much coffee and how many packs of cigarettes, um, they went through. Like if there was a, like if you looked at it on a line graph, like month by month and then the, uh, the, the weeks of Apollo 13, like the consumption of cigarettes and coffee just shot up. A significant amount and then dropped back off once they were safely on earth you know i think i think gene cernan might have just by himself be been most of that or not sorry not gene cernan uh gene krantz been most yeah. of that you know the the famous flight director um mm-hmm. <laughs> dude was a definitely one of the many chain smokers back in that day right it is funny though to see the consoles with the built-in ashtrays <laughs> 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 if nothing else that's a, a good sign of how far we've come that we're not chain smoking and mission control anymore I, i'm i well, would imagine probably smoking is prohibited thanks for listening to the first episode of the relaunch of the science and or fiction podcast if you haven't please go and subscribe on itunes that will make sure that you get every new episode of cyan or fi as soon as it comes out and also while you're on itunes if you could just leave us a review that would be very awesome of you Um, That helps other people find out about the podcast. And of course, if you're not already, uh, please go to Twitter and follow us. We're also on Instagram now, at SciAndOrFi. If you are looking for this podcast on other platforms, we're working on that right now. So the best place to find out about that is to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll get those updates out to you as soon as possible whenever there's a new episode, whenever we launch on a new platform, or whatever cool things we're doing. But as always, thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. So we, we're going to talk about, you know, sort of this this idea of returning to the moon. And I guess this is a good place to start because you got to imagine mission control on any and on a future moon mission is going to be probably pretty different. It's going to look right. very, very different. Right. So this is uh, a somewhat contentious and unsure topic. Um it's something that I'm very excited about, but also very trepidatious about, and that is Artemis. Yeah, the uh, what, what is it? The the sister of Apollo, is it? Yeah, Art. So Artemis was Apollo's twin sister, and and I'm sure there are people who know much more about Greek mythology than me um, that could tell me why that's more uh, significant. But um, sorry, I didn't study the classics all that hard. <laughs> but yeah, so Artemis. Um, is the 
very ambitious plan to put humans back on the moon. Um, it is something that is very politically motivated, much like the Apollo missions were. It's been pushed very hard by the Trump administration, particularly by Mike Pence, who, um, like Gus Grissom, but for totally different reasons, most of us in Indiana are very familiar with. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, the the motivation here for the Artemis program is, it's this, it's the same kind of thing. It's there's a there's there is a, a a political implication. We have to race to the moon. There's there's a deadline. Um, there's a lot of a lot of differences in the in the motivations here, but um, I still think it's great that we're that we're going to try to go back to the moon, right? Um, as kind of a stepping stone towards Mars and the rest of the solar system. Um, yeah, I think that it is. It makes sense for it to be a great stepping stone to get particularly to Mars. I mean, the moon is very much a potential resource and, and like a, a literally good springboard to get to the moon or to get to Mars and, you know, to outer places in the solar system, because it's a very uh, resource dense world with very little gravity compared to earth. So, using it as a staging ground to build and launch things that go further out into the solar system and beyond uh, sort of makes sense. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's just the idea of us having uh, a home on a, on a planetary body somewhere else than earth is, is exciting. And I think the moon is a great place to start that. The, the gateway architecture that they've been talking about um, putting, you know, in cislunar space is also a really, it, it's a logical extension of our, our current work on the International Space Station. It's, it's, you know, the ISS kind of architecture. It's a space station, but it's just, instead of being in low Earth orbit, it's in cislunar space. And right. to me, that is, that is a, a very clear jumping off point. Um, there's, there's more inherent danger because, you're not, you know, within 90 minutes of landing. Um, if something right. goes wrong, you're you're talking what about three days or so to get back home. Um, but it, you can imagine another stepping stone is something very much like Lunar Gateway, but just around Mars. Right. Um. And and so this as a as a stepping stone, it does make sense. I'm not entirely sure that I understand enough about how Gateway is going to work. Um. Or the name front, for instance, they keep changing the name. I'm just calling it gateway. Yeah. I um, think that's what the current nomenclature is. Um, so there, there's sort of a timeline. Um, the ideally the first launches to the moon as a part of the Artemis program would be by the end of this year. And that would be to put, to use commercial rockets, commercial hardware to launch, um, science experiments to launch some sort of technologies ahead to the moon. Uh, and that could be things like lunar rovers or, or some sort of, you know, CubeSats. who knows? There's not really a, a clear idea of what that is, but they, they have this idea and it's called the CLPS or commercial lunar payload services. And they're working with nine companies, um, 
not sure what exactly those companies are. I would imagine the big ones would be like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and SpaceX and other big space companies. Um, Blue Origin in there probably too. Yeah, and they're wanting to do that by the end of 2019 if those companies make those landers available. So uh, the first actual Artemis launch is scheduled or targeted, I guess I should say. It's not scheduled at all, but it's targeted to be in 2020. And that will be the first time that a SLS rocket, the space, space launch system, and the Orion capsule spacecraft will launch together from Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, that that 2020, you know, that that first mission is very very ambitious. Yeah. Um I there was some discussion um a little while back about maybe having crew on that first mission and I'm I'm very glad that they have decided not to do that. Um, right. that is insane to have crew on a, on the first mission when you don't really need crew. Um, yeah. Like the first shuttle mission had a crew. And although I also think that was pretty stupid, um, the shuttle needed a pilot to, to land. And so it sort of makes sense. You, you couldn't have a sh- that first shuttle mission without a pilot and a co-pilot, but to put, you know, on a, on a completely unproven rocket, it's using proven technologies, but the whole stack going up for the first time with people on the, on the top. Um, yeah. Glad they're not doing that. Yeah. Same. It's, uh, you know, we talked about how on the Apollo missions, how the computers were so simple, uh, in comparison to the computers we have today. And I mean, you know, there's everyone, there's sort of this cliche that, the average person has more of a computer in, you know, their Casio calculator pocket watch than there was in the, uh, the Apollo 11 command module. Yeah. And we've, we've come a long way since then. I mean, I have a order of magnitude more computer power than that in my pocket right now, uh, or even on my wrist on the computer on my wrist right now. But, um, that, opens up this other you know situation where well what is the value of putting human beings in these places because we already have landed uh craft on mars that have been able to give us all of and more than the amount of scientific data than the apollo missions were able to gather on the moon with people doing the science experiments so that yeah, that begs the question: What is the value of of putting human beings out there? And I think obviously it's because we want to go, we want to explore those places. But when it comes to these early missions, it it definitely makes sense for them not to be manned. Right. So maybe I'm not I'm not super up on the on the newest the Artemis nomenclature. What what we used to call EM one, the first uh, the first exploration mission. Um, so thankfully uncrewed, but the second one will be crewed. Um, yeah. once they kind of check out and, and, and verify all of the, um, the Artemis hardware. So that'll be a very exciting mission should it ever get off the ground. Right. Yeah. And again, this is all tenuous, I would say. They want to do this and hopefully it'll happen. But that will be the first time since um, the final Apollo mission that any human being has been around the dark side of the moon. Um, the first time that we'll have orbited the moon since... Apollo 17 
and that's pretty exciting. Um, but again, that is, you know, if this all gets off the ground, literally and figuratively, um, of course, you know, so the, the, around the same time, that's when they want to launch the first part of this gateway, which would be the power and propulsion section. Um, and the idea is for this to be like a solar electric propulsion system that'll also provide the power for the gateway much in the same way that the, the solar field does for the ISS. Um, and then in 2023, a year later, they're targeting that for the nomenclature that I'm using targeting is what NASA says, which is kind of good language to be able to get out of something in the future. But in 2023, <laughs> they want to land a Rover and that will be the first major scientific landing on the moon um as a part of this program yeah the the there have been other i mean obviously there's been other landings on the moon um since then um so like the the chinese space agency just landed something on the far side of the moon um mm -hmm. just within the last year and um there's a, a private israeli company that that got very close to landing something on on the moon um just a few months ago but uh something went very wrong in the, in the final descent um but yeah but nasa i'm i'm actually I'm relatively surprised nasa hasn't landed really anything on the moon since the apollo era which is no I for a while not much had been i mean the soviets uh landed um luna code uh, one and luna code two which were unmanned you know ro rovers that collected data and and they were their first landings on the moon for russia but Really, since then, up until very recently, not much has happened with the moon. We've just kind of been like, well, we did that, and there's not really anything for us there. We need to go to Mars now, and it seems like we're starting to have a consensus that the moon is our gateway to Mars. But, uh, yeah, so moving forward in 2023, along with landing that rover, they want to have the, um, the second gateway element, which will be a crew cabin. That's where the... Um, the spacecraft, the Orion spacecraft will dock and the landing module will launch from there to land human beings on the moon. Interestingly, this is the first launch in this uh, program that will be done uh, by uh, private spacecraft. So this could be the SpaceX or Blue Origin or, or whatever company with a big rocket um <laughs> their first uh launch to the lunar orbit yeah i mean as an aside trying to guess which companies are going to launch these things is is really interesting because i think as far as lift capacity i think probably the falcon heavy as far as mass um could probably do it but the falcon heavy's fairing doesn't hold that much volume um right and so it might be that that might just kill it right there um, the next one would probably be um, the Delta IV Heavy could probably mm. do it. It has the, the capacity and the volume, um, but those launches, I think you have to schedule those, oh man, like two years in advance. It takes them a long time to build one, and most of those are tied up in um, like spy satellite missions right now, so it's not like they can just grab one off the right. assembly line. Um Blue Origin's probably not going to fly for a long time, so I'm I'm not really sure how they're going to do that. Right, and it seems more like Blue Origin is honestly focused on low Earth orbit. Like, I think that they're... 
commercial ambitions kind of, it seems like for the time being sort of in there. And maybe that's just, they're feeling out the heavy payload long distance uh, market. But yeah, Bezos and his crew have been working a long time on stuff that I, they seem to be willing to wait to launch something before it's pretty close to ready. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. So 2024, this is when the, um, the human landing system, uh, which will be launched in a few different stages, uh, again, by private rockets, ideally, and they'll put this together in lunar orbit and dock it to the gateway. And then that will be what astronauts ride down to the lunar surface, which is kind of exciting. And then from there, um, NASA just plans on launching another uh, few missions, Artemis 3, Artemis 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then it kind of gets vague at this point, but in 2028, they want to have a sustainable human lunar presence. And I assume that means the same way that we have a sustainable human presence in low Earth orbit on ISS. Yeah, that, that, that seems to be the goal of, of setting up more or less permanent human habitation um, in cislunar space, which, you know, regardless of whether you think the Artemis program is, is going to happen or, or is reasonable or whatever, just the idea of having permanent human habitation around the moon is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, exciting. like I said, it's one logical step from the ISS, and ISS is starting to get a little old. Um, yeah. So it might be it might be time for something new as long yeah. as we're willing to pay for it. I mean, it's about as old as we are, so it's 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 a it's a millennial. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> get um, off my lawn! Right, and then from the moon, somehow we go to Mars. Well, yeah, and that somehow I I don't have a problem with that somehow because there there is sort of a vague suggestion that well we'll after we go to the moon we will then use that technology to go to Mars. And the whole point of it is that we don't know. Like, we're going to learn a lot of things going to the moon again, especially with modern technology. And, you know, our, our computers and stuff are way better, but, you know, aerospace and, and the physics of it haven't changed that much in the last 50 years. And a lot of the, you know, technical expertise and sort of institutional knowledge has sort of gone by the wayside. And we're going to have to relearn a lot of things. And so... The idea that we don't necessarily know how to apply the Artemis stuff to Mars is that's okay to me because we just need to learn a lot more. Um, but that does require Artemis to work, and I kind of have my doubts about that. Right. Well, I think technically, politically, there are enough things stacked against it that it is going to be a struggle if it is going to work. The other thing I think, you know, again, we talked about Apollo 11 is it was the first time we set foot on the moon and that was a momentous occasion. And then Apollo 12 and Apollo 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and the public was watching, but it wasn't as exciting and it didn't generate the same public intrigue with each successive time that we did it. And I think that on Earth right now, we have so many problems on Earth 
And there are so many things that require so much of our attention and so much of our being concerned about that are happening right here on earth right now. Not that there weren't in the 1960s, obviously there were, but I'm worried that we won't as a people, not just American people, but as the people of the world be able to extend our focus to this when there's so much else that's going on right now. And not only that, we're so much more connected than we were in the 60s. I mean, in the 60s, this was all TV and radio, and now we have the internet and social media that will be playing such a critical role in everything involved with space exploration. Yeah, I you you imagine those those couple of broadcasts that were made to and from the moon um and obviously during the EVAs during the Apollo program and those are super exciting cuz they were very rare sort of you know little windows into space flight but you can imagine setting up just a, a webcam in the corner of one of these capsules and just kind of letting it go and just streaming the whole time. Yeah. Um, they probably wouldn't do that for, you know, for mission critical stuff or maybe for some privacy reasons or whatever. But yeah, you have to, you have to imagine that the whole, the, the process of watching this happen from the ground is going to be just really different. Um, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. And whenever it happens, speaking of social media and the internet and things that will be following it, uh, I'm sure we'll report on it here on the Science and or Fiction podcast. And we'll uh, we'll be sure to wildly speculate about things, too, that we have no idea what we're talking about. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's a hallmark. That is us being completely on brand. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners look forward to that. Uh, they don't ever argue with us without us being able to respond to them while they're listening to us talk about the things we don't understand while they're in their car on the way to work. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to do it anyway. So uh, you have that to look forward to, listeners. But in the meantime, uh, I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. We'll talk to you next time. 